0: George Bush, not the one you're thinking of, and I guarantee you not the other one you're thinking of either, but a third man named George Bush, who is actually related to the two that you might know of, that George Bush was a Presbyterian pastor in the early to mid 19th century here in America. Unfortunately, uh, that George Bush later fell into heresy, embracing the doctrines of a sect known as the Swedenborgians, and uh, we'll spare any discussion of that. But prior to his fall into heresy, he wrote a commentary. He wrote several commentaries. He wrote a commentary on the book of Leviticus, and perhaps, understandably enough, he had zero to say about Leviticus 15. Page 60, uh, the bottom of page 60 of his commentary ends his comments on chapter 14. Top of page 61 starts chapter 16. uh, You might say that's a rather uh, eloquent way of saying no comment, right? So given the nature of chapter 15, we might understand George Bush's hesitation and inclination in that regard, but believing as we do that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we will seek to dig into the text of Leviticus uh, 15 and by the grace of God hopefully uh, learn from it. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus uh, chapter 15 and we'll uh, read this chapter uh, together. Uh, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge, every bed on which The person with the discharge lies becomes unclean. Everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on the thing on which the man with the discharge uh, has been sitting shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Also, whoever touches the person with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Or if the man with the discharge spits on one who is clean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Every saddle on which the person with the discharge rides becomes unclean. Whoever then touches any of the things which were under him shall be unclean until evening. And he who carries them shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. And be unclean until evening. Likewise, whomever the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. However, an earthenware vessel which the person with the discharge touches shall be broken and every wooden vessel shall be rinsed in water. Now when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe in water, in running water, and will become clean. Then on the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of his discharge. Now, if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water and be unclean until evening. As for any garment or any leather on which there is seminal emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it be on the bed or on the thing on which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. When she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days, and afterward she will be clean. Then on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for the one with a discharge, and for the man who has a seminal omission so that he is unclean by it, for the woman who is ill because of her menstrual impurity, and for the one who has a discharge, whether a male or a female, or a man who lies with an unclean woman. Now, this chapter obviously deals with the subject of bodily discharges. There are normal discharges and abnormal discharges. There are discharges from infection, there are discharges of semen, discharges of blood. These render men and women unclean. Verse 31 provides the rationale for the instructions given in the chapter. These laws are given for the safety of the people, so that the sons of Israel will be separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not bring their uncleanness with them to the tabernacle, defile the tabernacle, and therefore die because they defiled the tabernacle. Now, this chapter is uh, hopefully arranged as a as a chiasm. And what that means is that things at the ends of the chapter kind of book in the chapter, things closer together correspond to one another, and then there's kind of a hinge in the middle, if you will. And so let's let's notice that. The first section, verses 2 through 15, deal with... Abnormal male discharges. And this corresponds to verses 25 through 30, which deals with abnormal female discharges. The natural male discharge of semen is discussed in verses 16 and 17 and has its counterpart in the discussion of female menstruation in verses 19 through 24. And then the hinge of the chiasm, if you will, is verse 18, where there is a discharge of semen when a man and a woman are united together together in sexual intercourse. All of these discharges result in uncleanness. And we need to keep in mind, and Jeff mentioned this in uh, in Sunday school a few weeks ago uh, as he's teaching on Old Testament typology, that uncleanness does not necessarily imply that the one who has contracted uncleanness has sinned. All sin is unclean. But not all uncleanness is necessarily sinful. While some of the things discussed in this chapter could potentially arise as a consequence of personal sin, others are simply normal and natural bodily functions of men and women. Let's start by looking at the, the abnormal discharges on each end of the chapter. It's generally agreed among interpreters of this passage that the discharge from the man's body spoken of in verse 2 and following is in reference to a genital discharge. And this is often thought to be in reference to gonorrhea or something of that nature. Uh, The person with such a discharge is unclean, The bed on which he lies, the seat on which he sits, become unclean, as seen in verse 4. The saddle on which he rides becomes unclean. Verse 9, anyone who touches his bed or sits on his seat becomes unclean, has to wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And the same applies to anyone who touches the person with the discharge or the unfortunate person upon whom the person with the discharge spits. The the uh, same applies to the person who touches the things who were under him such as his saddle and so on and the person uh, with whom uh, the uh, whom the infected person touched without rinsing his hands and so if the infected person touches you without rinsing your hands then you had contracted uncleanness and uh, you would have to wash your clothes bathe in water and be unclean until evening verse 12 we see uh, reference to earthen, where vessels, uh, those, who, those which came into contact with the unclean person, need to be broken, probably because of the porous nature of them, which uh, would render them uh, incapable of being, of being scoured so thoroughly as to remove all of the impurity, while the wooden vessels you note can simply be rinsed with water. And then verses 13 through 15 give the procedure for what was to happen when the man with such a discharge was cleansed from it. Count off seven days, bathe his body in water, wash his clothes, and then he would become clean. And then on the eighth day, there's a sacrifice. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons were to be brought by him to the doorway of the tent of meeting, presented to the priest, one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering, and thus the priest would make atonement for him because of his discharge. And then on the other side of the the chiastic structure of the chapter, the situation is very much the same with the woman who is described in verse 25 and following as having her discharge of blood for many days. In other words, a discharge that was not that of her menstrual impurity. She would be unclean for the duration of that as though she were in her menstrual impurity. According to verse 26, her bed and the things upon which she sat would be unclean, the people who touched her and the things upon uh, which she sat would need to wash their hands, uh, excuse me, wash their clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening, according to verse 27. And when she became cleansed from her discharge of blood, the process for her purification, verses 28 through 30, is very similar to that of the man with the discharge early on in the chapter that we just observed, in verses 13 through 15. And so then at either end of the chapter, we have this law concerning the man and the woman with the genital discharge. And we should notice that these extraordinary discharges, these abnormal discharges, are the only ones in the chapter that require a sacrifice. It's only the abnormal male discharge at the beginning of the chapter, the abnormal female discharge at the end of the chapter that required that these two turtle doves or two pigeons be brought to the tent of meeting. The normal discharges that are closer to the center of the chapter did not require those sacrifices. And so next we see in verses 16 and 17 the situation regarding a man's seminal emission outside the the context of of sexual intercourse. In such a case, the man merely had to bathe his body in water and be unclean until evening. Any garment or leather on which the emission had run would need to be washed with water and would be unclean until evening. The parallel case, then, is the natural discharge of the woman, that of her monthly menstruation discussed in verses 19 through 24. In her monthly menstruation, the woman was unclean for the seven days of her period. Whoever touched her would be unclean. Her bed, the things upon which she sat, would be unclean. Those who touched the things upon which she sat or her bed would likewise need to wash their clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. There's no requirement here for the woman to make a sacrifice at the end of her normal monthly period, just as there was no requirement for a man with seminal emission to make a sacrifice. Now we do need to give some consideration to verse 24, however, in that it touches upon a delicate issue that, that pops up uh, more than once, about, about three times in the book of Leviticus, and this issue shows up in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel as well. Verse 24 mentions the uncleanness that comes upon a man who lies with a woman whose menstrual impurity comes upon him. In such a case, we're told that the man is unclean for seven days and every bed upon which he lies becomes unclean. Now the situation here seems to be that in which the man and the woman come together not knowing that the woman's period had come. They come together not knowing and discover only after the fact that the woman was beginning to have her period. And that this is the situation envisioned in verse 24 appears on the basis of later laws given Leviticus 18.19 and Leviticus 20.18. So the law of Leviticus 18.19 simply states, "...also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity." And Leviticus 20.18 then gives the penalty for such an action. If there is a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow, and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from amongst their people. Now if you notice here, notice the contrast between what I just read from Leviticus 20.18 about the man and the woman being cut off from their people. That's about as serious as the penalties get in Old Testament Israel versus what happens here in Leviticus 15.24, they're simply unclean for seven days. So clearly there must be something different in the the offenses between what's envisioned here in Leviticus 15.24 and what is envisioned in uh, Leviticus 18.19 with the penalty given in 2018. And the difference must be that in chapter 15, verse 24, this is this is inadvertent and is only noticed after the fact, whereas the prohibition in 1819 and the penalty given in 2018 have to do with a man and a woman intentionally coming together during the woman's period. And since we're here, uh, let me just speak briefly to the issue that these laws raise, that of a man and a woman coming together during the woman's period. Obviously, when it comes to Old Testament law, it's very clear this is... This is not to be done. And obviously when we're dealing with Old Testament law, we're dealing with a mixture of laws. That of moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. The laws which are moral, continue and abide forever, even in force upon us as Christians because they're a reflection of the holy character of God. The civil laws were laws that applied particularly to Israel as a nation but are no longer necessarily binding upon the other nations of the world. The ceremonial laws were laws such as those related to sacrifice and purity that pointed in various ways to Christ. And so the the logical question in this case is whether this law concerning a man and a woman coming together during the woman's period is part of the the moral law, part of the civil law, or part of the ceremonial law. Now the, the penalty described in chapter 2018 is certainly a civil penalty. They would be cut off from from the commonwealth of the nation. But uh, that does not necessarily answer the question of whether the law itself is a civil law, ceremonial law, or a moral law. And so the question here is, is whether this is something that continues and abides. In other words, that this is something that binds a Christian husband and wife in terms of what they are permitted to do and what they are forbidden from doing. Now, I want to be careful and circumspect here in what I say because the New Testament does not clearly address this question. And I have never, to this point, been able to find any official churchly legislation dealing with this, be it some ancient canon from an ancient church council in the past, some Reformation, Synod, Catechism, Confession of Faith, or otherwise. I realize that church rulings and confessions and ancient councils are not infallible and that I may set more stock in them than other people do, but whether right or wrong in their judgment, they can at least give you a bit of a barometer as to what Christians are thinking and perhaps even why they are thinking in those terms. Uh, Such churchly rulings on this question might be out there somewhere, but I haven't seen them. And so not finding anything explicitly in the New Testament on this and not much in the way of churchly decisions, uh, we're kind of left largely in the domain of commentators. And some commentators don't even want to talk about the chapter, much less this particular issue here. And some of the, some of the commentators will basically say, yeah, this is, this is what it was in the Old Testament, and keep their lips zipped as to whether or not this is applicable among Christians today, and so I am well aware, believe me, that I'm treading on, on dangerous ground here. My opinion historically has been that this law does speak to a moral issue, that this law actually does forbid men and women from coming together during uh, the woman's period, and I'm certainly open to, to further consideration, and I hope that I'm not beyond uh, being taught in accordance with the Scripture and plain reason on this point, but at least as I have considered this Um, I've considered it as a a moral command, and two main main reasons why. One is because of the way in which the sexual laws in Leviticus 18 are framed. Now, it's beyond our purview tonight to hash out the, the sexual laws of Leviticus 18, but I would just direct your attention there to the way in which those laws are framed. We're told that the other nations are judged because of these things. These practices are referred to as abominations. So, so look with me, if you would, just uh, to Leviticus 18. We'll look at 2 through 5, and then we'll look a little bit to the end of the chapter. So this is starting in Leviticus 18:2. "'Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, "'I am the Lord your God. "'You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, "'nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. "'You shall not walk in their statutes.' You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And then look down uh, to verse 24 uh, through 30. Uh, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these things the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which... Uh, has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus, you are to keep my charge, so that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Now, the the point that I'm going for here is that the way in which the laws of Leviticus 18 are framed. Suggests to me that the laws that fall in between there are moral laws and not merely ceremonial. And I think uh, I think if you read through that, whether you agree or disagree with me on this, I think you would agree with me that all of the rest apply to uh, to moral commandments. And if you if you paid attention to the language there at the end of, of chapter eighteen about. The, the land spewing out the the inhabitants and them coming under the judgment of God because of doing all these things, we never, never read about the other nations being driven out because they sowed their fields with two kinds of seed. Right? You've got, you've got laws about that in Leviticus. Ceremonial law, don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. We never read about the other nations being cast out because they wore garments made of different kinds of materials blended together. Right? That's, that's the Old Testament law. The nations were not cast out because of that. Nor do we read of them being kicked out of the land because they ate rabbits. Rabbits are off limits to the Israelites, Leviticus 11. We're never told that the inhabitants of the land were kicked out because they ate rabbits. But we are told here that they received the punishment that they did because of, among other things, their sexual misdeeds, among which is included this issue of a man and woman coming together during the woman's period. So that's that's number one. Well, I've traditionally considered this a moral issue. And the second reason is because of what we find in a couple of passages in Ezekiel. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll not read the passages, but I'll, I'll give them to you. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 9 especially verse 6. And then Ezekiel 22, 6-12, especially verse 10. Now, in Ezekiel 18, we have a description of a righteous man. And in the list of moral qualifications, one of the things that he does not do is to approach a woman during her menstrual period. Ezekiel twenty-two describes many of the sins of the rulers of Israel, and among those sins is that of humbling her who was in her menstrual impurity. And if you if you look at the list, uh, by and large, uh, most of the things mentioned in those two lists—Ezekiel eighteen, and Ezekiel twenty-two—are are moral issues, not not simply ceremonial issues. Now, in saying all of that, I realize this is not an airtight case. I understand that. With the cessation, of the cessation of the ceremonial law, we no longer consider women unclean during their period. I understand that just because a particular law occurs in a context where a list of moral laws fall, that that doesn't necessarily make all of the laws in that list moral laws. I understand that. There are, there are lists in which I, I think I would uh, see most of the commands as moral, but not all of them. And so I understand these things. And so I won't attempt to bind your conscience on this matter, Christians have disagreed on this. From what I can tell, Calvin regarded this law as moral, um, while his uh, apparently his friend, colleague, and successor, Theodore Beza, uh, did not think that it was moral. And so um, I toss that out there as an opinion, as something uh, for you to think through in, in an informed Christian conscience. I think, at the very least, we could all agree, as Calvin said, that the husband should enjoy his wife's embraces with delicacy, and propriety. Now again, I realize as regarding the, the issue of eating blood that we tackled several months ago, uh, sometimes you might get more than you bargained for here in a Sunday evening sermon. Be that as it may, but it's here in the text, and so try to deal with it faithfully and reverently. And we will attempt to apply those same criteria, of faithfulness and reverence, to the hinge of the chiasm here in Leviticus 15, the this final case of involving a uh, a man and the first case involving a woman up, up through the course of the chapter, the first two issues regard men. second two or the, the final two issues regard women. This hinge of the chiasm is the one in which man and woman are together. Uh, verse eighteen: If a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Here we find that even the act of sexual intercourse between husband and wife rendered them unclean. Now, as in the, the cases of the, the seminal emission, verse 16, and the, the normal period of the woman, verses 19 through 24, there's no sacrifice that is required. Now, we may well be wondering why even this, in the, the context of marriage, rendered men and women unclean. Verse 31 gives us the the rationale for the instructions here regarding the uncleanness, namely that the Israelites not defile the tabernacle and die because of it. But the chapter does not explicitly tell us why these bodily fluids, in in any of the cases, it doesn't tell us why these bodily fluids rendered the men or the women involved unclean. Now, in the case of of women with, with menstruation and blood, we could potentially see a connection perhaps with the the prohibitions against blood. And uh, as we find uh, later on, Leviticus 17.14, for as the life of all flesh... Its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And so we understand there's something of the preciousness of blood in the, in the Old Testament economy, the, the blood for sacrifices and so on. And uh, therefore we could potentially understand why maybe even human blood, human blood even from a period could potentially render someone unclean. And we might perhaps understand why a man's unnatural discharge would render him unclean, in that, uh, in, the, in, in even the, the, the natural emission of, of semen outside the, the act of, of intercourse, because this is not its intended purpose. But, but why? Why verse 18? Why did the act of marriage itself render the husband and wife unclean until evening and require them to bathe? The text doesn't tell us, right? It's not, it's not there. And so we're, we're left to sanctified wisdom and common sense to the best of our ability. Some have thought that the reason behind the law of verse 18 is to, uh, to teach moderation in marriage. Some have thought that even though marriage is to be held in honor by all and the, the marriage bed undefiled, Hebrews 13, 14, yet that no act... That or any other is completely done without sin, and therefore this particular action by which the corruption of human nature is propagated when there is conception and offspring, that this rendered the husband and wife unclean required ceremonial washing. There may, may be some truth in some of those postulations. Um, commentators of more recent times have suggested a line of thought which, which I think to be at least somewhat helpful and maybe... Maybe more helpful than just somewhat helpful. And that line of thought is to suggest that the reason for which the Lord regarded these discharges for the people of Israel to be unclean was to push back against the, the paganism in which the nation, uh, among which the nation was surrounded. And so one commentator described it this way. He said, God's classification of semen and menstrual blood as impurities desacralized them and prevented the Israelites from engaging in pagan and occult practices. Since the emission of semen made people unclean, no couple could ever have sexual intercourse at the sanctuary as part of any ritual enactment. These laws located sexual intercourse securely in the common realm. Sex was not, under any circumstance, sacred. It was not at all divine. And I think that if we consider the, the context of the idolatry of Canaan, And the kind of pagan practices which Canaanites engaged in, this, this view, I think, makes a lot of sense, because those kinds of things were done in the worship of false gods, but it was not to constitute any part of the worship of the true God. And lest we think that the pagan viewpoint and practice is something that is buried in the oblivion of the past, let me assure you, it is not. There is some New Age weirdness and wickedness out there in which the sacralization of these things is taught. And just to give you a, s- a small sampling, let me uh, give you the words of a, a woman named uh, Dr. Tario Matsiba from an article uh, dated 2019. Uh, she said this. She said, The emotional and spiritual work I have been doing in the last two years has helped me realize that Menstruation is something beautiful, sacred and worthy of celebrating. I'm learning to tap into the sacred power of menstruation and to understand what it means to be divinely female or divinely feminine. In many ancient cultures, menstruation was seen as a sacred and precious time due to the connection of the cycle to the moon phases. Menstruating women were believed to have uh, believed to harness great shamanic and spiritual power. Anthropologists suggest this may explain the use of menstrual huts in certain cultures, originally intended as safe spaces for women to retreat at the height of their powers. Now the point is that there's been some weirdness and wickedness out there in the world historically in regard to sex and menstruation, and this stuff is not past. This is present as well. It is still out there. And we would do well to let a chapter like Leviticus 15 remind us that we must never, ever, Go there. And we must also allow this chapter with all of the impediments that these laws placed upon the people in keeping them in their uncleanness from the worship of tabernacle. We must allow these laws here to remind us of the great cleansing that is found in Jesus Christ. For the uncleanness of these things is typological of the impurity of sin. Now, many of you are no doubt familiar with isaiah sixty four six but we do well to consider what the text actually says. for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In other words, all of us are like one who has become unclean one of one of the people described here in Leviticus fifteen and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment now. You know, when we often think about that, we might think about an old junk shirt that we use for changing oil or, you know, something like that, but this word translated here in modern English often as as filthy garment could also uh, potentially more literally be rendered as as a rag of the times, a rag of menstruation. How's that for a comparison of our work's righteousness? All our work's righteousness is like that. How wonderful... It is, then, that Christ is the one who cleanses us from this impurity, that Christ is the one who clothes us with his righteousness, with his good works. Ours are like that rag just described. Christ clothes us in white with his righteousness. And what a picture we have of this in the Gospels. We read that chapter, Mark, uh, Mark 5, at the beginning of the service, that tells us of a woman in the condition described here in Leviticus 15:25 through 30, right? This woman had this discharge of blood that had been going on for 12 years. She had spent all she had and had not been helped, but only gotten worse. But rightly she knew that if she touched Jesus' cloak, she would be made well. She did touch his cloak, she was healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed ...of your affliction. Her uncleanness was not transmitted to him. She reached out and touched his clothes, but her uncleanness was not transmitted to him. Rather, his cleanness became hers. And these things which rendered one unclean in the Old Testament time... ...no longer do so because of the the coming of Christ and the passing away of the shadows. And the good news of the gospel is that the realities to which these impediments pointed... ...remember these impediments ultimately point to our, our sinfulness, and that we can't escape it, right? Just like no human here in Leviticus 15 could ever escape uncleanness, it's going to happen to them at some point, so also we can't escape our sin, right? We, we live in a world full of sin, our hearts are full of sin, but nevertheless, our sinfulness is taken away and cleansed by Christ, and we're cleansed in the same way that that woman in Mark 5 was, by faith. Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Praise be to God for the cleansing that comes through Christ comes freely on the basis of faith. Let's pray. Father, we have just looked at a, a difficult chapter of Scripture. We pray that you give us wisdom, give us understanding and insight, so that how uh, as to how we can apply it faithfully to our lives. We are thankful, Lord, that uh, that this. These uncleannesses, which would would keep someone away from from worshiping you, the tabernacle does not does not apply to us any longer that that these bodily things do not keep us away from from worshiping you we 're thankful that we 're cleansed from the things to which these impediments pointed, that all of our sins are cleansed through Christ, that we are we're washed in him, Lord we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you build us up in Christ. We pray that you would help us to love and trust him with all that we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.